Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. This is Season 5, Episode 19. Today I'm talking to a writer who I've always dreamed of talking to, Crescent Dragonwagon. Crescent has written the Cornbread Gospels, Bean by Bean, Dairy Hollow House Cookbook, and more. She's written several children's books and is very beloved by many children across the nation for these. I've worked with Crescent before when she was generous enough to answer my interview questions, and today she was equally generous in this interview that had many faults. Uh, She was unflappable in the face of bad connections. She was complete charm and grace throughout. If you've not read her books, there are links in the bio section, and I urge you to do so. Um, You're going to really want to get your hands on the Cornbread Gospels, one of my favorites, although it's really hard to have favorites with these. Bean by Bean is great, too. If you have kids, her children's books are legendary. We have some technical difficulties with the recording, as you'll notice. We did our best to edit everything out. For that reason, I hope to have Crescent on again and get to answer questions again and chat without any interruption or difficulty. With that being said, I'm going to go right to the interview. Hey, Dean. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing, Crescent? It's good to meet you. Doing well. Good to meet you face-to-face. Yeah. Just voice-to-voice. I just got back from my local library and I, well, how appropriate to be meeting with Dean, a passionate librarian. Very nice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I'm glad to, always glad to hear people using libraries, but I already knew you did. So it wasn't a surprise. You know, the Fayetteville Library, I don't know if you've ever Googled it. It just won an award from ALA. I think they just spent $35 million. It's unbelievable. It's the center of town here. It's a wow. beautiful library. So I've never uh, been to Fayetteville. I, my family on my dad's side is all from Arkansas. And I've never, I mean, I've been to Arkansas doing work and stuff, but I've never actually visited the old family stomping grounds. So one of these days I like to do that. Which part of the state were they from? My dad said that they were near Dronesboro area. But the town they lived in was uh, called Leechville. Okay. The Jonesville area, uh, Arkansas is really like four different states, if you think of it bioregionally. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Jonesboro area is quite different from the northwest Ozark corner where I'm in. And where there's a lot of Walmart money flowing in, yeah, and a lot of arts, a lot of art stuff here. But the, our our local library made me the their first official writer in residence. So oh, that's wonderful! Office. I have a little office there. It's it's not this office. It's a slightly more public office, but gosh, they're wonderful. I just innovative, amazing facility. Now you, when did you first move to Arkansas? Um, The first time that I came to the Ozarks was in 1970. And I found my way to the little town of Eureka Springs. And I lived there from 71 to, um, to about 2002. And then after I was widowed, I waited two years and I moved away. I helped my mother through her end of life up on the East Coast and my late aunt. And I lived in Vermont. And then after they both died, um, 
I would have kept my house in Vermont if I could have afforded to live there part time. Yeah. But I couldn't. So I let it go and I moved back to Arkansas huh. because although I don't care for the politics very much, the social ecology is just perfect for me. And it's a beautiful part of the world and an interesting one. So now when you initially had moved to Arkansas, I know that um, there was a big movement, many um, people that were. I guess under the umbrella term hippies had moved to the south and were making some communes and john birdsall wrote a book uh recently just a few years ago called hippie food and he talked about how many people moving to different parts of the united states ended up changing the face of food by bringing things into areas that never had them before like tofu vegetarian food things like that were, did you experience any of that while you were there first there in the 70s well what what uh, there was a book that you can find without too much trouble called Hip Billies. Oh, okay. And Hip Billies is about the back to the land cultural, countercultural movement of that era in the Ozarks. There's a lot of it in the Ozarks, and I was certainly part of it. You know, I'm on my initial visit here was that idea of self sufficiency and. Um, it's it has gotten lost in the in the press of time, but in the actual era, there were hippies and there were radicals. Right, the radicals wanted to change society and change the world, and radicals thought that hippies were flakes because they smoked too much dope, and hippies thought that radicals took themselves too seriously and couldn't lighten up, and. I was probably more in the radical side than in the hippie side, um, but I, I, we didn't have the phrase climate change then, but I was part of a group called Roots Ecology Action East of New York, and I thought that the world would fall apart and that there would be terrible extreme weather and that probably the human race would not make it, but there might be small little clumps of people that were self-sufficient. And um, I was one of those clumps of people. And it was a brief period of my life, but an interesting one. And now of course it's historical, it's the back to the land movement. But um, so from 71 to, about 72, I lived in a rural um, collective in the Missouri Ozarks. And then after a brief period that I more or less, anyway, I lived in a city in that area in St. Louis briefly. And then I found my way to Eureka Springs and I stayed there for many years. Um, now you wrote your first not, cookbook there was the, the 1972 the commune cookbook was that inspired Actually, by you? I wrote that I wrote that in New York oh um, yeah I was living um I I moved away from home very young at 16 and I moved into a commune in Brooklyn um, wow a beautiful brownstone um if you had told me then that we were the opening wedge of gentrification I would have been most unhappy um but we were we were the only white people in a predominantly Puerto Rican and black neighborhood. And everybody was very curious and interested in us. 
and we rented this wonderful brownstone and there were eight of us that lived together there. And so I wrote the commune cookbook coming out of that, but it was not published until a couple of years later. Um, I was going to ask you, cause I, I initially had said to you, I wanted to go over all of your books and you laughed, said, good luck because <laughs> you've written quite a bit. So you've written, is, is the, is it the count 50 books that you've written? That's correct, as far as I can count. <laughs> and six different genres, which is pretty impressive. And that's the genres. It's not counting. I had a play produced in 2018, my first theatrical thing. Um, and of course, there's magazines and blogs. But in books, children's books, cookbooks, uh, novels, one book of poetry, one... Um, biography, and soon a memoir. Um, so that's six there, I believe. Now, your parents were Charlotte and Maurice Zolito, both of them famous writers. Would that make it hard or intimidating to become a writer yourself? Uh, well, every yes means a no, and every no means a yes. Um, so the answer would be both yes and no. It made it easier, it made it harder. So the way that it made it easier is primarily, you know, what you grow up around does not seem too mysterious. You right. know, if, you're, if your parents are fine as carpenter, you know what uh, the what joints are. If their contract with the cheat rock can't get. I saw that stuff happened in your life and you fooled around with it and you wrote about it. Maybe not literally, but you were, you took from life like a crow finding little shiny bits and flying up to the nest with it. Um, you took from life, you were curious about life, you wrote about it directly or indirectly, you found a publisher send it off and it might or might not get accepted so for example i never had the deal that people have of like oh what if you're rejected i never felt like it would be the writer it would be the piece of writing and i understood that that was just part of the the way that it worked so it was not very mysterious or very um and i understood that had cycles that you didn't get paid every week or every month, um, that there were a lot of reasons. You know, I, all of those things to close the door and be alone and quiet. I mean, I, it was a sort of a journeyman's close up. It wasn't very romantic. It wasn't like a big ego trip. Oh my God, you know, publishing it was just how you did it. And so, work habits, I saw rejection. You know, I saw that they did not too much weight on inspiration, that when they had an idea, they sat down with it, but they also showed up when they didn't have ideas and they, they worked at it. And so, um, so it was never very, it seemed more practical and down to earth, I think, than it would be for a lot of people. Now, so in that way, it was made easier. There was less of the angst about it. But in terms of um, 
you know, what people thought is, oh, well, you know, that, that it would give me some kind of a deal where publishers would be more likely to read or accept my work. Absolutely not true. Wasn't even true of their work. Um, no matter how well known a writer is, they, they get, they, not everything is accepted by them. You know, right. you just keep working and some things get accepted and some don't. And so, you know, it's harsh for me as a teenager that was first starting to write, you know, to get a lot of, oh, well, her mother works at HarperCollins. Well, you know who her parents are. Right. So, but I kind of got over that pretty fast. You know, people are going to think what they're going to think. And, um, and so in that sense, it did not make it easier because, you know, for a publisher, it's primarily a business decision. How much money do they want to invest in your book, in your right words to turn it into a book? And while a given editor might be passionate about it, they're not too much passion driven they, these days. Individual editors might be, but basically, you know, they have to feel like they're going to get their money back and yeah. make some. Otherwise, why? And um, so, you know, I currently am of the impression that I probably had the perfect parents for me, but they were, you know, gifted, tense, intense, flawed, talented, interesting people. Um, and I mean, I'm inclined to guess that I would have been a writer even if I had been born to a family of steelworkers or lawyers or secretaries. But who knows? I mean, that's the family I was born into. My brother is not a writer. Um, certainly none of them have ever helped with my writing, you know, other than if I had finished something and I, you know, maybe occasionally wanted to read them in an early draft and get their one and not very often. And of course they've been dead now for a long time. My father since 1991, my mother since 2014, 2013. Now, you wrote the Dairy Hollow House cookbook, which you also had in the Dairy Hollow House. Can you tell us about writing that and um, what it was like for you and what it was like to run the Dairy Hollow House? <laughs> um, well, this little town that my late husband and I were madly in love with, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And when you land there, you probably wouldn't know about it unless somebody told you about this wonderful little town in the Ozarks. It was founded around the springs. So it was mostly built in the Victorian era. And it was a boom town. At one time, it was the second largest city in the state because people were coming to take the waters yeah. before, the, before the rise of penicillin. Sulfa drugs were just then coming in. And so people came there to take the cure. And they came from all over the country and they built fantastic little Victorian homes uphill and down. It's very hilly terrain, but the city set aside property around each of the 36 springs in the city limits. So when you see the town, it doesn't look like any other place really. It looks more like a European hill town 
than an American city, let alone in the Ozark Mountains. And so we fell in love with it. And at that time, there were, you know, tourists and visitors, and there was a big line between the um, tourism people and the preservation people. All the hotels and accommodations, with one ex two exceptions, were new construction hotels. And Ned Shank, to whom I was married, and I had this idea about starting a bed and breakfast country inn in a little house next door to us. And we bought it and we started it, and that was the first one. There are something like 60 bed and breakfast inns now. Um, an inn meaning it was not a homestay. They weren't staying in our home. They had a separate, you know, a residential property that we retrofitted. And Ned was an historic preservationist. And then after we had had it as the bed and breakfast inn with breakfast brought to each room in the morning, we decided that we would add a restaurant and we did. And we bought a second building that had a few more guest lodgings in it and a you know, wonderful dining room that we added on. And um, so we had that, the restaurant part of it for about eight years and the inn for 18 altogether. And um, in those days, in my late 30s, early 40s, um, in that period, um, you know, I would get up in the morning, I would write for a couple of hours, I would have lunch, take a nap, work out, shower, and go and be a chef. And, you know, I'm 69 now, I wish I had that, that kind of energy, I don't have <laughs> that much stamina these days, but um, it's a very productive period of my life. And of course, writing is totally introverted. And then being an innkeeper and cooking, that's totally interactive, um, extroverted, you know, so it really filled two very different sides of myself. And I was fortunate to be able to do that. And so, you know, I was asked for the recipes and, you know, a cookbook is much more than recipe writing, but, but with, to me, every recipe is an unwritten contract between the writer and the reader slash user. And the contract is, do this, this, and this, buy this ingredient, follow these directions. If your oven is, is calibrated, if you're using the right kind of pan, if you follow the directions, you will have the result that I have described to you. It will make as many servings as I've said that it will. There, it's promises that, you, that you're making the reader. And if they follow the directions and you're, you've kept your promise, they will, have, they will have reproduced a dish that is fairly identical to yours. And if they didn't, it's on you, the writer. Not only spend time, which a writer asks of any reader, um, you're asking them to spend money and to take actions. And so I took that how to. I was going to dedicate the book to him, 
and he died before it came out. He knew I was going to give it to him, but he never got to see it. He never got to see me as the 50-year-old girl on, on the front. Um, so there were some challenges and decisions that had to be made. I left it in the present tense as if he was still alive, but in the introduction, I told the story of his life and death and the creative challenges. You know, I'm trying to invite people into the book. I want to be truthful about grief and loss, but I don't want to bum them out. I want to invite them to the table. So that introduction was, I'm happy with the way that it can, happy about writing about a very unhappy thing, but I managed to, to eventually grab it, um, I think. And so that book had, I mean, I think it's my best cookbook, but I'm not, um, the, the one that is certainly the bestseller is Dairy Hollow House Soup and Bread, a Country Inn cookbook, which is being reissued this year in a 30th anniversary edition. I have an, I have a, I think one of the older editions of it actually. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. About The Passionate Vegetarian, this is a book that I came to know you from. It was a I used to sell it in bookstores. Um, so it was one of those things, like if people said they wanted a vegetarian book, it was really easy. It was like, here, this, this is exactly what you're looking for. And it was. Can you tell me about the success of that book and how it kind of um, helped promote you as a name, as a writer? Okay. Um, well, you know, the interesting thing about, one of the interesting things about the inn was that I was a closet vegetarian. Now the inn was not vegetarian and we served meat, fish and chicken as well as vegetarian options. But you would not know that the chef was a veg. And actually a lot of chefs are vegetarians sub rosa. Um, they, you know, they wanna stay in business. So they're not, you know, and in, in Arkansas, a vegetarian restaurant was not gonna make it. Right. Um, but so, so I always had wonderful vegetarian food there, but we had a woman at the end that raised longhorn cattle. And she said that my beef bistro style was the best she'd ever had. And she has, and you know, I'm telling her how to make this, but, um, and you know, in some senses, perhaps I cooked the animals more uh, respectfully even than someone that, you know, I mean, I. I cooked them carefully and very respectfully. But when it came time, when we uh, let go of the inn, and by the way, um, we did not sell it to somebody else. We founded a nonprofit, which still exists, a writer's colony called the Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow. I'm no longer on the board. My only connection is historical. But 20 years on, it's thriving. Writers from all over the world come and stay there. So that's wonderful. That's that's a very happy thing for me. But anyway, so I think because of all the years in which I had cooked meat, fish, and chicken, 
and just stayed. I mean, the the absolute most I would do when I did a sauce is I'd dip the spoon and put my pinky in the sauce and do like that for salt. Everything else I could kind of taste mentally. Um, but so I think with all those years of repressing my own temperament, I was so eager to share with people this amazing food that happened not to have animal animals in it. And although it wasn't vegan, it was um, vegetarian. So there, there is dairy, milk, and cheese in it. Um, anyway, with, with um, so there was all that passion that was bottled up for a lot of years that I kept it kept it hidden. And that was a story, cookbook that I told a lot of stories in. Um, and I uh, won a Spirit Award, uh, which Jacques Pepin gave to me. And I always wow. remember him open, opening the envelope and saying, and the winner is passionate vegetarian. <laughs> and, and so that was quite wonderful. And, you know, my, my beloved husband, you know, you didn't have plants in the days when I did that. There was there was no milk or um, so. You know, there's an introduction updating it, and um, so that book. You know, I brought up a juice to it because I had locked down the fact that I didn't eat meat for a lot of years. Only intimates knew that. That's how that one came to be written. Loosely, it took me ten years to write that. That's a big honking book. And of well, course, I was a chef. Meanwhile, it, it was iconic to me. I remember because I think so many of the books had a specific. So, so many cookbooks before this came out had a specific look to them, and the representation was always like a chef or something of some type. And it was not ever really fun. It was always kind of very staid. And your cookbook was more fun. It was more engaging and I think accessible for the readers. Do you think that changed the face of cookbooks? Because I feel like there was an, an after period for that where it started changing the way cookbooks. And I think a lot of them followed suit with the way yours looked. So before and after for the passionate vegetarian, as far as the look of cookbooks, because it seems to me that before the passionate vegetarian came out, there was a different look to cookbooks. They seem very formulaic. And I feel like after years come out, it's almost like you gave people permission to be more fun with it. Do you think that's hmm. true? I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I've never thought of it that way. Um, I would like to think that. Um, I, I think Peter Workman, who's deceased now, but was the my cookbook publisher for a lot of years. Um, he was a true visionary. And he, with um, the silver palette books that they brought out, that yeah. Workman brought out, that were so substantially illustrated. And I think it was Sheila that did the illustrations, but don't quote me on that. We should, we should look it up and see whoever did it. But they did lots of illustrations and that certainly changed the graphic look of it. Um, Peter liked definitive books. I, I would have liked to see. I was going to ask you about, because the uh, Cornbread Gospels had such a 
wonderful look to it. It was very, very, it's not just a great cookbook. It also is just one of those books you could sit down with and enjoy. It's just thoroughly from beginning to end, a wonderful book to look through. Did you have any hand in the visual aspect of it and the way it was written out? Very recently, publishers had kind of a separation of church and state. They didn't want the the author telling the illustrator too much what to do so the right. illustrator could have his or her own artistic vision. And children's books, that was, you know, in the early it was they practically put a wall. They didn't want you to meet or you because know, they didn't want they didn't want the the illustrator saying the illustrator comes up with her with red hair children's books. I'm having a more input into it. I actually get asked, but I didn't come up that way with it. Um, I was shown sample sketches in the case of soup and bread, passionate V, and cornbread gospels. I think the illustrations for soup and bread are phenomenally wonderful illustrations. They have very much the feeling of block prints and they, they really fit the book. Um, I think I like the illustrations in, um, in Passionate Vegetarian a great deal. They had a first go-round of illustrations that I did not care for at all. And Peter Workman, bless him, he got somebody else in there to do that, which I don't know any other publisher that would have thrown them out and started over. But he got, you know, so they're inviting, they're soft and sensual. And then the ones in... Uh, in Cornbread Gospel, they also have a little bit of a block print feeling. They're very appealing. Right. And then in Bean by Bean, they're sort of a little bit cartoony, a little bit like the, the designs in, um, you know, in the New Yorker when they break up the text with little yeah. drawings. Yeah. Uh, there's that feeling to it. So it's a kind of lighthearted feeling in Bean by Bean. Um, so at this point, I sort of have a yes or no, or what I really like, or if I see something really egregious and point it out, they might take it out. Um, I have like suggestion power, but am I sitting there with the graphics designer going over it? No, although I might like to, but you know, that's not a thing they extend to us. Um, it's such a wonderful book. I mean, all your cookbooks are wonderful, but those two, I know that families that have them share them, you know, with the children and the parents share them and they're such loved books. And I, I don't know if the intent was that, but it really worked because it really, you know, has that effect on families. Thank you. Thank you. You know, my, I, I know a number of people that, you know, a particular cornbread recipe has become their family cornbread and what a nice, it's just a nice way to, inadvertently become part of people's kitchen lives. Um, you know, there's a woman in Springfield, Missouri, who wrote me that when her son went off to college, she didn't hear from him for a while. And then he wrote and he wrote because he wanted the cornbread recipe. And it's the skillet sizzled buttermilk cornbread <laughs> from Passionate V. Um, and it was just... You know, cornbread, who doesn't love cornbread? Um, it's, now nobody agrees on what the perfect cornbread is. Depends if you're 
not just Yankee or Southerner, but you know which state you're in, which which region of the South or North you're in. North less so, but in the South, it, it really varies from place to place. Um, so the cornbread one was a fascinating one culturally, because people are very passionate and particular about what their cornbread is. And it was very fun to collect the family stories of that too. It was weird for me because like I grew up with cornbread because um, both sides of my family are from the South. But my grandmother from Texas made this really non-leavened kind of flat cornbread that was almost used as a scooping tool. And my mm -hmm. grandmother from Arkansas, conversely, never made cornbread. She only made biscuits and never would talk mm -hmm. about cornbread because cornbread were not for her family. So it was weird, the cultural connotations of cornbread and how people are so fierce with it. And your book really brings that out. Yeah, I was amazed at the you know, connections that people have. I mean, it's about, it's poverty survival food to some yeah. people. And that flat, dry cornbread that's used as a, you know, that's intended, that's a kind of cornbread that is intended to be eaten with soups and stews and beans, soupy beans. And you kind of dip it in or you can crumble it over or you keep it in one hand and you eat it with the soupy stuff. It's intended to be dry, but for people that grew up on a moist cornbread, maybe one that has wheat flour in it, you go, oh, you know, you don't, you don't get that. I mean, I, I happen to really like those flat, plain, unsweetened cornbreads, but they're an acquired taste to some, to many people, um, especially if you're accustomed to the more cake style Yankee cornbread, you have a hard time with it. But um, if you had, if cornbread and greens was what you survived on during the depression, then yeah, biscuits are a step up. They have all that, that fat in them. Flour is more expensive than cornmeal. Um, and so there are people that just, um, you know, turn up their noses. They consider it poor people's food. Yeah, and, yet, right. and yet it also has, it's also family food, survival food, and delicious too. You know, there are oh, many yeah. different kinds, but I mean, I, I, only cornbreads that are heavily sweetened and heavily added stuff to seem wrong to me. But um, most of the simpler ones I really like. Other than, you know, a tiny bit of sweetness helps it brown. And of course the Yankee ones they have a lot of sugar. I don't like them too sweet, but other than that, they really appeal. I brought some cornbread to a, not cornbread, I brought some uh, polenta to a potluck and some uh, friends that were attending were from the South and they ate some of the polenta. They'd never had it before. And the husband was heard saying, well, that's some sorry ass cornbread. <laughs> <laughs> you tell them it's grits, dude. It's grits. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, now by, if you're a polenta lover, Got to try oven baked polenta and passionate vegetarian. It is so easy. 
No more bubbles that burst into your face. No more burned pots. It is as easy as eating a bowl of ice cream to make. It's the easiest thing I make and it makes it possible to make polenta for 50 people without breaking a sweat. And none of the stirring, none of the, you know, the big bubbles, that, that recipe is worth the price of admission on that book. That's such an easy recipe and so good. I've made that and uh, it is good. And if you've, if anybody is listening to this and has made the old way over the pot with the bubbles, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'll never go back. You yeah. will never go back to doing it. Easier to clean up, easier to make and just delicious, but. And avoiding the trip to the ER. <laughs> Now, you've also written a lot of children's books. You started with Rainy Day Together in 1971, and you've written quite a few of those. I imagine that over the years, you've developed a lot of fans among children. Do you, have you ever had any feedback or letters from children about your books? Oh, yes. Many, many times. And I used to do, I had, you know, maybe eight or 10 years where I was part of the Arkansas Artists in Schools program. And so I did school visits. I would get between writing for kids and visiting classes. I got many, many fan letters that I just loved over the years. Um, my all-time favorite fan letter was after a school visit in Georgia. A child wrote me, you know, dear Miss Dreamwagon, thank you for coming to our school until you did. I didn't know there was anyone weirder than me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> now that's, you know, that's just, doesn't get better than that. Um, I got one very sad letter. Um, my alligator arrived with apples, which is a Thanksgiving alphabet book, um, potluck, a feast for you, a feast for me, a feast that goes from A to Z, a feast for us and several guests, a feasting full Thanksgiving fest. There's a lot of funny stories about that one which has been a very popular book for a long time. A lot of families read it every Thanksgiving aloud. It's a Thanksgiving alphabet. So at the potluck, there, you know, alligator arrives with apples, bear brought banana bread, biscuits and butter, cat carried cranberry compote. So that book is a very cheerful book that is often read around the holidays. And so one woman whose son's name was Robert, they were reading along and, you know, Robert was very excited and was guessing what the R animal would be. And according to his mother who wrote the letter. And when they got to the R's, the text in the book is, there were quinces from the queen as well as the royal red relish. And Robert was so unhappy that it wasn't like rabbit uh, rigged up radishes or... <laughs> rabbit uh, rushed in with ratatouille, um, you know, instead it was just the royal red relish. So I was very sorry that I hurt Robert's feelings inadvertently. <laughs> um, I had somebody once tell me, and we can see how different, how fast foodways change in this country, because here it is, what, 30 years since that book is out. But someone said to me, you know, I just love that book of yours. It was the only, only Q food is quinoa. And you, yours had it in, you had quinoa in the book. 
that's wonderful. Actually, I don't think I had I had quinoa and passionate vegetarian. I guess that's what the person was because it was quinces from the queen. No, there wasn't quinoa in in uh, in alligator arrived with apples. It was quinces. <laughs> anyway, um, so I have I get wonderful letters from children periodically and from parents telling me how their children have responded to it. And occasionally I will get asked questions, but not too often. Bat in the Dining Room was one that we loved. Oh, I'm so glad. That's, that one is one of my favorites and it did not do that well. I think it's my best one for reading aloud myself. I love the little rhymes in it and the dramatic moment, you know, the wildlife officer had a gun. It would not kill, but only stun. You know, you can hear the children, if you read that in class, the wildlife officer had a gun. <gasps> you hear the little children gasp because by that point they're rooting for the bat. And um, yeah, I love that one. I, I hope that one gets reissued too. My book, Will It Be Okay? is about to be reissued this year too. Oh, lovely. And that has new illustrations by Jessica Love. If you know her work, she did yes. she did Julian as a mermaid and a lovely illustrator. So I liked Ben Schechter's pictures, but they are very white and very dated. Um, tender, sweet illustrations. Um, so I'm glad I'm glad that book is getting a second life. We had a lot of um, your children's books at the Napa Library where my son kind of grew up. And so that was always really nice to see those. I don't think we like sought them out necessarily, but he always would be bringing them up to me when he had his <laughs> stack of 80 books to check out, you know, so he, he was, he was a fan. Lucky boy to have any, any child whose parents love to read. They just get such a jump up ahead in life. I love, I'm, my wife and I are really, really like, asking for grandkids because I, I can't wait to read to kids again because my son's <laughs> my son's an adult now and he's like please stop reading to me <laughs> but, but I live for it so like it's always nice to be able to do it I love reading out loud and being read to out loud and um and you know my my present husband Mark Graff um happens to read very very swiftly so he has not, I've not quite converted him to the pleasures of reading out loud because he hasn't gotten over the fact that it is so slow compared to reading to yourself, especially if you're a fast reader like he is. But to me, that slowness is part of it, lingering over the sound of the words and looking at the way that it flows on the page or with the illustrations and the sound and the rhythm. So it's more than the content of of it it's the rhythm it's the music it's but so far he's not a convert of to me on it and i miss it i would one of my favorite things to do is be read too while i'm cooking but now you have a lovely voice have you ever have is there any any thought to you doing audiobooks from your fictional work or even any I, anything else like that thank you thank you for your compliment i have um i did do the audiobook of all the Awake Animals Are Almost Asleep, my last children's book that was done with Little Brown. Um, but 
I am going to be doing the audiobook for, um, I guess you know this one, The Year It Rained. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Miss Sweetie Berry, who you've had some dealings with, she's, um, we call her my dragon flight navigator because it just makes me crazy to say business manager or strategist or any of those things that she is. It's all a little too meh for me. You know, I mean, I sort of, I won't say I blunder along in my life, but I'm pretty open to felicity and serendipity. And so, so, you know, the jury is still out on the idea of strategy, but she she is an amazing woman who loves my work and has lots of good ideas and thank god for her um you she's know, pretty that, wonderful that you know to have someone that that really advocates for your work and makes you see it in new ways so she had the idea that we could do the recording of this one because she too likes my voice i'm also going to do a, a series um of audio for sleeping because oh nice you know again when i did when i did all the awake animals and we recorded that the editor was in the you know outside the sound booth but in the room and afterwards we're walking back to to her office and she said oh. <laughs> <laughs> she said she said you know i was a little worried when you said you wanted to do it cuz you're such an energetic person but you talked so sleepily she said, did you practice that? And I said, well, Andrea, here's the way I practice it. I sometimes have a very hard time going to sleep. So I talk to myself and I will say a few things out loud to myself in a very sleepy voice. And she said, stop, stop, you're bringing me back to sleep, <laughs> said she. So, um, so I'm doing a series, you know, some of them will be for children in which I will speak in a soporific voice and read the sleepy story. But some of them will be for adults and they'll be sort of my own combination. There's something called Yoga Nidra, which is essentially self-hypnosis. Yeah. In the yoga lineage and then of course there is self-hypnosis which a lot of people use that stuff to go to. there's a million tapes on on um you know youtube you can find mine won't be free but they will be well done and i hope will help you know god everybody's having disrupted sleep during the pandemic and oh yeah craziness with that and so to be able to offer something that might well help People fall asleep without using, you know, Valium or whatever. Um, so, so Sweetie and I are going to be doing some recording, both of the year it rained, which would be a traditional books on tape and some, some um, audio for, for um, making sleepless nights less sleepless and more sleepy. And I'm looking forward to that. I think we're going to start that um in the next couple of weeks and i will let you know or ask her to let you know when Please. those things are out and you know and when we know when the new book is out you know we would love to celebrate that with you please too. i would love that too now i also want to ask you 
about your writing program, Fearless Writing. Mm. It's a 12 part program that you're doing right now, aren't yes. you? I think it's like, is it, it's ongoing right now, right? Yes, it is. But you can't join because you have to be there for all, all 12. Right. Of the, I, I always, there are 12 per step. It's not a 12 step program, but there are 12 <laughs> components of it. Yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're up to number seven in our next, our next class. Um, writing always has fear stirred into it. You know, a writer yeah. isn't, isn't sure if it will be any good, if it will be accepted, what will their parents say? What will their children say? Will they make any money? Will they be able to do what they're trying to do? Um, will they be sued by a relative? Um, how does it, how do I even put it together? I have all these things I want to write, but what's the structure for it? How does it go together? Um, how do I turn off my inner critic? I tell people to become friends with their critic um, and to listen to them, but not particularly believe them. Um, so, so essentially my writing classes are of three different kinds. There are what I call cow classes, which is craft of writing. And a cow class would be to turn events into your real, in your real life into written material, for example. Right. Or what does show but don't tell really mean and how do you how do you do that those are craft of writing classes um a lot of people are still confused about the difference between memoir and autobiography yeah and you know how do you find the structure for those are all in dragon language cow classes craft of writing right fearless writing is what we call a cow class process of writing most people try to start out by learning the craft and then they're unprepared for how emotionally difficult writing is because they haven't looked at the process and they don't understand that fear is not pathological but that it is part of the process and so they don't have any skills for how to work with it they might know oh be specific in your writing be sensual or whatever the craft is, but if they're not prepared for the fear and the temptation to give up at that point, they stop. So fearless is great fun for me to teach. And I have many students who have gone on to thrive. Monica Clark Robinson is a student of mine and, you know, she won a Coretta, her book won a Coretta Scott King Award. I think technically it's the illustrations, but the illustrations were to her book, best debut children's book. Um, she's doing wildly successful now. She took Fearless twice, 10 years apart. And she kindly credits me with, with what she did with it. Um, Raghavan Ayer, the Indian food writer, has taken several classes with me. And he's, he said of it, you could teach an ant to write A-N-T, not A-U-N-T. But you know, I, I'm the, the uh, psychotherapist, Richard Price once said, 
you always teach what you most need to learn. You are your own worst student. Yeah. So the reason that I'm good at teaching fearless writing is I am afraid a lot of the time when I write, and yet I write anyway. I don't procrastinate too much. Um, and when I do, I see that as part of the process as well. Um, so, so the, uh, the POW classes are process of writing as opposed to craft of writing. And then there's a third kind that I'm working up to teaching because in some ways it's my least favorite part of it, vocation of writing. And that is right. when you want to make a living writing. And those are the vowel classes. So we have cow, pow, and vowel. And it <laughs> sounds like some kind of Asian dish. I just had, <laughs> I had, uh, I had uh, podki mao today at a Chinese, re at, a, a, at a Thai restaurant for lunch. It sounds like that, sounds very much like that, but actually it's Cow, pow, vow are my three kinds of classes. And it is great fun to get to be a, like a nice winged bird and sit on the nest and help my students, you know, keep them warm till they can. I'm doing a little thing with my finger, like the eye tooth, the eye tooth on the shell and watch them hatch. And it's thrilling to me. Completely different kind of thrill than writing or for that matter than cooking and interactive in a wholly different way than the hospitality of innkeeping. Um, but it's lovely and I'm deeply grateful to get to do it. I look forward to my classes every week and my, my students tell me they look forward to it too. And especially during the pandemic, you know, it switched. I used to do hybrid, part of the people would be present in person and part over Zoom, but now it's 100% Zoom, but you know, we really bond on those things. And during the serious lockdown, I had a couple of people in California that were really confined to their apartments and backyards. Yeah. And those people, oh, you know, there's another, there's another, uh, this one kind of combines process of writing and craft of writing a little bit is a, one that I teach called Tuesdays at Crescent. It's just a writing group. It's not, it's not connected to the percepts. I don't exactly teach you how to write explicitly, but you wind up learning because I will throw something out and we'll all write about it and then we'll discuss what happened. And I do that for eight Tuesdays in a row. And um, that I, Usually I do Fearless twice a year and um, Tuesdays with Crescent twice a year. This year it's going to be one because I have those new books coming out in the fall or those reissues. Yeah. Um, but so that, you know, it is so lovely to watch people kind of be astounded that they can write so well. And it's not like I do it. It's more like I toss them the key and they unlock the door themselves. I don't open the door. It's not my door, it's not my wall, but I do have some keys that work. So I kind of, there you go. And man, is that is that fun for me. And you know, dragonwagon.com is my website and there's a little drop-down menu on, on um, workshops and upcoming stuff. And so there is, you know, for all those years that I taught fearless writing afterwards, people would come up to me and 
say, really, it's about more than writing. It's about living. It's fearless living. You need to call it fearless living. And I kept saying, meh, meh. you know, I can present myself as a writer. I've got 50 books out, but who's going to believe me about fearless living? You know, no, 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 you need to teach fearless living. And then Sweetie Berry swept into my life. And she said, fearless living, fearless living. <laughs> so she's got me doing some of those. I'm doing one coming up shortly that I do periodically called Self-Compassion 101 because we often are not very kind to ourselves. No. And it's like throwing away the your main resource, which is you. And so I love... You know, I love all those things. If I can help somebody sleep better or like themselves more or make a good pan of cornbread, that's nice. It's it's extra. <laughs> now, you had one that I was interested in called left brain planning for right brain people because uh, I am yes. very right brain. So, <laughs> OK, well, uh, you know, it it's um, it is that one I teach every year in that funny little week between Christmas and New Year's. And I always put it on the sliding scale with all of my classes. If somebody really wants to be there and they don't have the money, I don't believe in undercharging for what I do. And I believe I do that. I stick with that partly for other writers, you know, as well. Yeah. Um, it is worth it what we have to give. But I also make it so, you know, if somebody needs to pay me out over time, that is fine. As long as they, they say, I intend to pay XYZ over XYZ months. So, so sometimes I will do it on a sliding scale, but always, again, through Sweetie, we can do it. I don't want money to be the barrier for people. Right. And so, um, but I don't do it for charity either. Although, you know, sometimes I have a scholarship or two. But if someone wants to, you know, I have one person that paid me over five years, fine, no problem. They stuck with it. And in all these years of doing it that way, I've only had one person ever who didn't pay me what they said they would pay me. You know, they did eventually. Everybody else did. Um, so yeah, left brain planning. I always do it in that funny little week between Christmas and New Year's. This next time is going to be, I'm standing up to look at my calendar to see when it is. It's the, it will be the 27th and 28th of December, 2022. And um, that class is two days and it's three hours a day for two days in a row. And then there's an optional group that people can join that we meet once a month and have a check-in with each other. And there's a secret Facebook page where you know people can leave their comments or show what they're doing with their planner but i'm very much you know again my heart goes out to people that are creative but haven't learned how to work with time yet because as delmore schwartz said time is the school in which we learn time is the fire in which we burn and i love helping creative people plan. I have one person in my left brain planning group that she's she's taken the class two years in a row and been part of our monthly session for that time too. And she's an academic. And 
she realized she wanted to take a sabbatical in the course of the whole thing. And she began figuring out how she could do it. She realized she did not want to be in the administrative side of academia. She just wanted to teach. So over these two years, I watched her use her planner, not only to plan time, but to look at her life. And my theory with planning is sort of like think global, act local. Think mm -hmm. global is think about your whole life. What do you want your life to look at? Okay. Then how can you live that life in the next 15 minutes? What incremental part of, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I want to have meaningful relationships. Well, are they making time for friendship, for romance, for whatever thing it is, for hanging out with your kids, um, hanging out with their aging parents, um, siblings, old friends. Um, so I help people in left brain planning ask themselves what I call the mother of all questions, which is, is this expenditure of time or money or emotional energy, creative energy, is it taking me closer to or farther from who and what I want to be? And of course, you have to ask yourself that question first. And then from asking that question, as Annie Dillard, uh, author of Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek, and uh, I think she wrote A Writer's Life as well as the book I'm thinking of, she said, how we live our lives is, of course, how we spend our days. And so I, in left brain planning, I help people think about what do you want to do with your life? Okay, how can you tra translate that to your days? And I adore teaching that class. My wife and I will be there this year. <laughs> oh, love to have you. Yeah, I mean, we'll be there. It's, it's really fun. That's a fun class. Yeah. That sounds like right up our alley. We need that bad. <laughs> well, six kids. That's a lot of kids. Yeah. And that's a lot of organizing. And I have one other guy in that class who they, they have a number of adopted children. And, you know, to get that organized and to have time to write or whatever other thing, it's big. It, it's, it's really hard when you're when you're juggling time it just making time to write is difficult but i know the answer is there so we'll definitely be in that class wonderful cool i'm I so glad i got that. to talk to you today about this this is this has been great to discover this well it's my pleasure and i will have sweetie let you know or i will let you know because there's a bunch of interesting stuff coming up and i'm grateful to you for helping me send the invitations to the world. Yeah, I really, I'm so glad I got a chance to talk. I hope we get a chance to do this again sometime Thank soon. Thank you so much, Dean. Thank you for being on the podcast. Okay. And that was my conversation with author Crescent Dragon Wagon, author of the Cornbread Gospels, Bean by Bean, Dairy, Hallow, House Cookbook, and more. Um, come in uh, next week on Monday. We're going to be starting a brand new season six and we'll be having author Tamar Haspel on. She's the author of the Unearth column. Her new book is will be out uh, this week to boldly grow and that is a chronicle of her times becoming more self-sufficient, 
growing her own food, hunting for her own food, and addressing the issue of providing for one's own food. On Friday, we'll be having Texan author Judy Alter, whose Blue Plate Cafe mysteries are legendary, and her new book is The Gourmet on a Hot Plate. You'll enjoy uh, my conversation with Judy. With that being said, I hope you have a wonderful evening and a wonderful weekend. And until we talk again, keep cooking.